You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our sermon this morning, I'd invite you first to turn in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you at the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and the people will come out and water will come out for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us? Or not? Thus far from the Old Testament, let's turn now to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for forty years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken of the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that, it still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later he spoke through David as it As was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. 
There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Our text this morning is Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 95 is a well-known and well-loved psalm, just like Psalm 92, which we which had our attention last week. So Psalm 95 is a special psalm and holds special place in the hearts of many of God's children. It's a psalm all about worship. It's a psalm in which we de- that we delight to sing in, in the context of worship. Perhaps you could say Psalm 95 is the classic worship text. It begins in beautiful ways and especially in the middle. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Beautiful words. Words that have been put to music many times. Words that have been sung in many situations. But I wonder, especially after having looked at this psalm this past week, and I hope we'll find this morning... What happens to the second half of the psalm? Especially, at least to my knowledge, in more contemporary versions, uh, hymns that are based off of Psalm 95, beautiful words about the first half of the psalm, and somehow the second half gets dropped off. It doesn't get our attention. It gets left out. And if you read the second half of the psalm, beginning at the second half of verse 7, perhaps you agree with the decision that's made to leave this second part off. It's not comfortable. We don't really like it. Does it even fit with the beginning half of Psalm 95? There was a movement at one point of theologians 
who sort of thought they could take apart God's Word as they wished. And the second half of Psalm 95 was one that they would say, well, that doesn't really fit. It must have been added at a later time. Clearly, this doesn't belong to the psalm, and so we can just leave it out. But of course, we believe and confess that this is God's Word. It's a unity. There's no evidence to suggest that this part of Psalm 95 was tacked on later, or that the beginning, for that matter, was tacked on later. No, the psalmist wrote this all at the same time. God, the Holy Spirit, inspired this for us at the same time, and so it must have our attention. We need to ask ourselves, will we ignore this second half of Psalm 95? Will we ignore it? Will we allow it to drop off in our memory? Will we leave off reading those verses when we read this psalm? Or will we read it and understand it and rejoice in the grace of God that is being presented here in this entire Psalm 95? And so this morning, we hear from Psalm 95 a warning to hear the voice of God. A warning to hear the voice of God. This is a pointed warning, as we'll see. It's also a timely warning. And finally, we'll see that it's a necessary, even a good, even a comforting warning from God to His people. So this is a warning to hear God's voice. And so, as I said, this is a psalm about worship. And just for a moment, I want to talk about that word worship. What is worship? Do we do worship here on Sunday morning? Is worship something we do in all of our lives? How do we use that word? How do we do worship properly? Well, yes, it's true that all of life is one of worship. We can worship God in all of our life. But there are times of our life in which we worship in in more, you could say, special, more special, more concentrated ways. Perhaps a good analogy of this is, is water. Water. You know that water is it's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen at all times in whatever state it is. It's always H2O. That's what water is. But at different times, water has different concentrations, different densities. It's, it's most concentrated in the form of ice. And it's in the middle when it's water and can also be vapor. It's always H2O, but at certain times it's more dense, it's more concentrated than at other times. Well, worship is like that as well. All of life is worship, but at different times it's more concentrated than at other times. In all of our life and whatever we're doing, we can offer it as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, but at other times, we'll be more focused. Think of times of, of family devotions. We read and pray and sing together. That's a, that's a more concentrated time of worship. And then we have what we're doing this here this morning, which is, which is worship, corporate worship. This is the, the densest kind of worship. This is when we come together as God's people and He speaks His Word to us in a special way. When we, we respond all together in in praise and thanksgiving and petition. And so, this Psalm 95 is a psalm for worship. 
It's probably especially a time for that densest, most concentrated time of worship. Just like we're doing here this morning. Now I say that, even though there's no heading here that tells us that's what this is for, but that's what the words of this psalm speak so clearly about. It was one that must have been used for corporate worship events as the psalmist proclaims at the beginning, come, let us, let us. It's all in the plural. Let us all together. Let's each, as we worship God in our lives, now come together and sing for joy, shout aloud, come before God with thanksgiving. Some explainers have suggested that this psalm might have been used at at the special feast days of the Israelites as they would come together at the temple and worship God. And worship is a massive theme of this psalm. It's, It's full of it. Let's sing for joy, shout aloud. Let's come before God with thanksgiving, extol Him with music and song. And then in verse 6 of this psalm, it continues, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. It's this theme of worship that indeed makes this psalm so beautiful to take on our lips on so many occasions, not the least of which is Sunday worship. But as strong as that theme of worship is in this psalm, I want to ask you this morning, is that the main message? Is that the main thrust of this psalm? Let's take, let's take a look for a moment at the movement in this psalm. It begins with a call to corporate praise in song and voice and with thanksgiving. And it fits then very well with the other psalms in this section. Psalms that also begin in such a way. Psalm 93, we'll sing it later. The Lord reigns, He's robed in majesty. Psalm 92 was a psalm for the Sabbath day itself. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 95 fits squarely in this part of the Psalter with its call to worship, its general call to worship and thanksgiving at the beginning. And then the verses 3 through 5 give the reason for this worship. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, the mountain peaks belong to Him. Now, wait a second. What's this verse 3 all about? The Lord is the great King above all gods? Is Psalm 95 suggesting that there are other gods among whom the Lord God is the greatest? Well, no. In fact, it's stating precisely the opposite. You can think of Psalm 96, the stanzas, uh, verses 4 and 5, where it says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all the gods. For the gods of the nations are idols. The gods of the nations are idols. They're nothing. He's to be feared above all gods because the other gods are nothing. And so here, the Lord is the great God. He's the great King above all the other gods because they are nothing. And that's in fact what he's saying in verses 4 and 5 of the psalm. Because the, the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks and the sea those were all thought to be the special places of the false gods. The false gods were thought to congregate on the mountaintops, uh, to be in the deepest valleys, and the sea was certainly theirs because the sea was a dangerous and a scary place. But the psalmist here is affirming that, no, the Lord God is King of all creation. 
He is king everywhere. There's not a special spot for this God or another God isn't more powerful here. Our God is king everywhere. In the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks and the sea, in fact, our God is the creator. He formed all this by his own hand. And so it begins this psalm with a general call to worship. And then after that, the psalmist gets more specific. Not only is God the great God, but He's our God. This is a wonderful truth that God's people have always rejoiced in and confessed. God isn't some impersonal life force that we tap into or that we know is around and and somehow that helps us. No, He is our God. He is the covenant God. He is the God who has extended a relationship, a bond to us of covenant, a bond that He will not break. The One who comes into our lives, establishes that relationship with us, and gives us eternal blessings. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. But notice there in verse 6 the implications of this close relationship. What are the worshipers doing as they acknowledge that God is their God? They're bowing down. They're kneeling before Him. Now, for some reason, whenever I had read this verse before, I sort of thought this sort of continued the theme that was going on in this psalm. Sing for joy, shout aloud, bow down, kneel down. These were all expressions of of jubilant worship, but... Is that what bowing down and kneeling before the Lord is? In fact, here the psalmist is growing more serious. The the psalmist is moving us along. This is the second movement in the psalm. Yes, worship God, but worship Him, our God, by kneeling down, by bowing down before, by falling prostrate before that King who is the great King. In the ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, the context of this psalm, the, the nations around Israel, the king was the absolute sovereign. He was absolutely in control. And he would demand that his subjects bow down to him. Uh, you can think of King Darius in the book of Daniel or Xerxes in the book of Esther. The king demanded that his subjects bow down to him And to not bow down to him was to die. And so the psalmist urges that we, God's people, would bow down before him because he is the great king. We are his. We are his sheep. And he is the shepherd. And again, there, a beautiful image of of God's love and care. He is the, the shepherd. Psalm 23. Beautiful image of God's care for us. But along with that is also the realization that we are His sheep and we must listen to Him. The relationship that we have with God is very, very serious and very much lopsided. It's a relationship in which God is King and we are His subjects, in which He is shepherd and we are sheep. He's the one who's in control. And we are the ones who are under His control. 
And the psalmist urges that we would recognize that by bowing down and kneeling before the Lord, our Maker. And so the psalm gets more serious as it moves along. And then you come to the last movement in the second half of verse 7. That's the final movement, and that's the one that's going to have most of our attention for the rest of this sermon. And it's the starkest of all. It's a strong, even a surprising warning. After all these beautiful words you hear today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As you did at Meribah and Massah. And it ends, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Again, we don't know exactly the context that the psalm was written in, but some, some explainers suggest that perhaps as the people on special occasions would gather at the temple, all the people together would, would take the, the words of verse 1 through 7a on their lips. They'd, they'd call each other to worship. And then they would become silent. And then the, the priest or, or one of the Levites would, would call out, beginning at verse 7, this warning to the people. So they would come together in that most concentrated time of worship, and it was precisely then that this warning would come to them. It's precisely then that this warning is fitting. This warning would come and, and would warn the people about turning a deaf ear to God. Listen to Him. Take heed of the example of the people before you, which we read about in Exodus 17. The Lord was their shepherd in, in the wilderness. They were the sheep under His care. He, he looked after them. He gave them everything they needed. And yet they did not listen to Him. They, they tested Him. They quarreled with Him. That's why that place was named Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. It was that attitude, that disobedience, that lack of faith in God that indeed led to the Lord, led the Lord to say, you will never enter my rest. If you will not trust in me, you will not enter the promised land. And so this is a warning to those who worship God to those who bow down before God, to those who kneel before God. It is to us who gather together to worship God that this warning comes. Listen to the voice of God. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews picked up this warning to the New Testament church and said also today we need to hear God's voice. This is a warning to us. To me, to you, to all of us. It's a warning that comes in the context of God's special relationship with us. It comes in the context of God's covenant love. It comes in the context of, of God's care and protection over us. It comes in the context of that special time of worship that we are in right now. When God says, listen to me. Listen to me. This is the best time to hear God's voice. It's a warning against a sinful, unbelieving heart. And it's fitting that it should come to us now 
when God's Spirit would work in our hearts through His Word to build faith in Him. So this is a pointed warning to the worshipers of God. It's also a timely warning. It's a warning to us today. It is a warning to God's people of all times. This happened to the people in the desert generation. And God warned them, and they would not listen to Him, and so He said, you will never enter My rest. And then the psalmist wrote about it here and gave this warning to the Israelites of all generations. Listen to the voice of God. And then the author of Hebrews picked up this warning again to the New Testament church. And so it abides. It, ab- it was for them also, so soon after the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the voice of God. And so it's a warning for us today as well. We, the people of God, the people who worship God, can only reach a place where we can coast along once there, we are in a place where there is no sin. Once we have completely and finally entered that rest, that eternal rest. Until then, we need to heed the voice of God, to listen to His warning, to keep His Word close to us. It's a warning for today. The author of Hebrews, as he writes about it, has this tightly composed argument about the enduring character of today. This is not just for the people who were hearing this at the temple. Today, if you hear His voice, know this today continues even today. This warning is for us at all times. It's a timely warning. And there's comfort in this. Isn't there? We get afraid of the direction of the church. We wonder what's going to happen to the church in the next generation. What if the things that we see now continue? Will there be a church around to worship God and to praise God? Well, God's people of all ages have needed to heed this warning. And having had this warning, God continued to preserve His church. And so if you're afraid of the trajectory of the church, of the way that the church is going, okay, But there has always been need for a warning of God's people. The Reformation, that time when God's Word abounded, was no sooner had it happened than it was followed by extremism on the one side, when people went way too far, and by people who just went apathetic on the other side. A dead orthodoxy set in. In the face of the Great Awakening in America, where God's Word was being preached in New England, and there seemed to be a liveliness, a response, a working of the Spirit. No sooner had that happened than there was fanaticism on the one side and there was lifelessness on the other. Within five, ten years, within one year. Liberalism was the scourge of the 19th century and many denominations are dealing with the hollowed out effects of it now. The history of our churches should teach us that God's church has been through thick and thin. Every generation has had to hear this warning and has had to respond with a softened heart and a desire to hear God's Word. And so this is a challenge for us today. 
Are we going to listen to the voice of God? Are we going to listen to the voice of God? Are we going to listen to it in the face of what we hear in pop psychology, which is far more prevalent than we can even imagine? It seeks to change our thinking, how we think about things, ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our lives, our priorities, in ways that are in contradiction to God's Word. What are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to God's Word in the face of evolutionism, which seeks to rewrite our history, which seeks to rewrite our direction, which seeks to rewrite our uniqueness, contrary to God's Word? Are we going to listen to God's Word in the face of traditionalism, which seeks to impose the false ideal, uh, the false notion of an ideal time on the present time? If only we would keep things like they were then, or then, or back then, then we'd be fine. Are those the voices that we're going to listen to today? Are those the voices that are going to decide our direction? God said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. They were following other ways. What ways are we going to follow? And we could list a countless number of voices to listen to. But the psalmist comes to us with this pointed and timely warning. Listen to the voice of God. Will we hear the voice of God? Is God speaking in your life right now? God speaks to us through His Word. The Spirit applies His Word to our hearts. And so His Word must be prominent in our lives. Is His Word prominent in your life? Can you say, yes, today, daily, I hear the voice of God. He speaks to me through His Word. You spend time in God's Word. We're coming to the end of the month of August when everything seems to take a break, Bible studies included. I hope that reading God's Word has not taken a break for you. But September, things get going again. Bible studies. Men's society, women's society, young people's. Many other Bible studies in our congregation. Will you join one? Will you be an active participant there? Will you go to hear the voice of God along with other brothers and sisters? And like we said, Sunday worship, It's a special time of worship in which God speaks to us. Will you continue diligently to come and to hear God's Word? To come expecting to hear God's Word? Not to put in an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half or however long it takes to sort of check in and check out. But to come to hear God's Word. To expect it, to long for it, to prepare your mind and your heart, to hear God speak to us, to put all those other voices out of our minds, that we might be able to concentrate all together upon what God has for us in His Word. And this morning it is a warning to hear Him. It's a warning that comes, of course, in the context of worship. God never just gives us these warnings and says, here's the warning, now figure it out. and Come back to me when you have. No. He gives us the warning in the context of His grace and His love. 
in the context of his greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to his warning. And it is, finally, brothers and sisters, a necessary warning. Why is this warning here, anyways? It's so abrupt, and like I said earlier, we'd often rather not pay attention to it. We do that often, don't we? We don't pay attention to it. It's something that we'd rather just not deal with, we'd rather put off. Ever have that where there's someone that you need to deal with at work or at home? You need to speak to them, you need to hear them out, but you don't want to, and so you just put it off. That's how we often are with this warning. But brothers and sisters, we need to hear this warning. We ignore it to our great peril, as this psalm goes on to show. We ignore it to our great peril, precisely where it is the inclination of our hearts to ignore God That's where we need to renew our desire to hear His voice. That's why in this concentrated setting of worship, the psalmist gives this pointed warning to us. Because we need to hear it. We need it. It's necessary because if we don't hear the voice of God, if we harden our hearts and we don't believe God at His Word, then we miss out on nothing less than the eternal rest. And the children of Israel are the example here. They fought against God at Meribah. They didn't want to listen to His servant Moses. And the result of their disobedience was 40 years of wandering in the desert, never achieving the rest that had been promised to them. The author of Hebrews goes on to note that this there's application in this warning for us today. But for those who will not hear it now, The consequences are far more dire than wandering around for 40 years in the desert. At any point, those children of Israel, although they were wandering around in the desert, could have repented. And God would have accepted their repentance. God would have heard them and they would have entered His eternal rest. But if we will not hear His voice, if we will harden ourselves against Him, and that's what happens, that's what the author of Hebrews says, We become further and further hardened as we stop listening to God's Word. We get hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If we're not listening to God's Word, then we're listening to other voices that are leading us astray. And the end of that hardening is exclusion from the eternal rest. And so listen to the warning. Hear the voice of God. This warning is necessary. It's also beautiful. It's beautiful because there is a warning for us. Because God so cares about us that He would give us this warning. And that God is so gracious to us that He gives us this eternal rest. Will you hear the voice of God on this? There is an eternal rest. It's won by the conquering King, Jesus Christ. To enter it is to enjoy eternal pleasures at His right hand. To experience the enjoyment of His presence and His peace. Jesus Christ went to the cross, rose again, so that we might have an eternal rest. 
And it is there for all who will hear the voice of God and believe and believe in Him. If you're becoming hardened to this message, then take stock of your heart and ask the Lord fervently to soften it, to create in you a love for His Word, to give you ears to hear and a desire to grow in faith. And so we need to continue, brothers and sisters, to warn each other and to encourage each other as long as it's called today. Let's guard against sin's deceitfulness and be vigilant vigilant to hear and give attention to the Word of God. Let's encourage each other every day to hear the Word of God. Looking forward to that eternal rest. Looking in faith to Jesus Christ. Given for us and for our salvation. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.